Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. Over the past month, we have considered the Lord's Supper, the church's family meal. We began this study by looking at the scripture, the biblical foundation, if you will, the biblical foundation of the Lord's Supper, looking at the Old Testament and the Passover, looking at all of the New Testament scriptures that speak about the communion, the Lord's Supper. Two weeks ago, we spoke about the history, and that history is 2,000 years of history from the time of the New Testament all the way through the first few centuries of the persecuted church, and then when Emperor Constantine not only legalized uh, worshiping Jesus and Christianity, he actually required it as the state church, and it was that way for a, a long, long time until the Middle Ages went through, and then finally we get to the Reformation uh, in the 15th and 16th century, and, and then the Enlightenment, and now here we are today. Last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at the hope. From 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But what does all this say about the significance of the Lord's Supper today? This morning, I want us to look at that great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and read through it and mention a few others along the way and draw some conclusions about what this means for us as we partake of the Lord's Supper today in 2022. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Verse 20, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead and with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, uh, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. There are a couple of other passages listed on your outlines as well. From 1 Corinthians 10, a passage that uses the word Koinonia, the word that we translate most of the time, fellowship, is translated there, participation. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a participation with each other and with the Lord in the body and blood of Jesus. And it talks about our lifestyle, our lives, our daily living in that passage and refers to us living lives of morality and not immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the the same thing. Although it doesn't use those same terms, it speaks about the ethical requirements of people who have given their lives over to Jesus Christ and calls on us to live faithfully. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, the passage that we read, the Apostle Paul, guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit, addresses where the Corinthian church was failing. Aren't you glad that the Corinthian church had such horrible problems? (laughs) Because that is basically what 1 Corinthians is. It is Paul addressing not only their questions, and they had sent him some, but also addressing some of the issues and problems and difficulties that were going on in the church at Corinth, one of which was how they were doing the Lord's Supper. And as as we read, he was not happy at all. So much so that he tells them, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 20. Can you imagine us receiving a letter from a church leader saying, you're messing this up to such an extent that you're not even eating the Lord's Supper in church? He calls on them and us to discern the Lord's body. In verse 29, when partaking, and to examine ourselves in verse 28. I appreciate our shepherd Jay Bynum's prayer a little bit earlier as he spoke about uh, being willing to examine ourselves and improve in our daily walk. Because I believe that that is exactly the perspective of 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll say more about that. As we go along, clearly from the context of this chapter and the larger context of chapters 8 through 14, Paul is concerned that they are not acting in consideration and love toward each other. That's where they were messing up the Lord's Supper. It's not that they weren't thinking about Jesus. It's they weren't thinking about each other. So much so that Paul says, why are you doing this and humiliating? some of your brothers and sisters. And when you think about that section of 1 Corinthians, we get it, right? We understand that's the general context. In chapters 8 and chapter 10, 
We read much similar to Romans 14 and 15 and some passages in Colossians and Ephesians that talk about being considerate and loving towards each other and respectful of each other even when we disagree with each other about certain doctrinal beliefs. In chapter 9, Paul talks specifically about the rights and freedoms that we have as a Christian, so much so that he says, I have the right to give up all my rights. And that's what Jesus did for us, so that's what we should do for each other. In chapter 12 is that great passage that speaks about our being one body, but many members with many different gifts, many different roles, but all the members belong to all the others. And so we're one body, but many members. Well, how does he use body there? He's specifically talking about the church in chapter 12. In chapter 14, he speaks again completely about the worship assemblies, one of the few passages of Scripture that we have, along with this section of chapter 11, that deals specifically with the worship assembly. And he speaks to them and he says, look, if your worship assembly is not encouraging and edifying everyone that's there, it is not scriptural. It is not biblical, which is an interesting thing, a sermon perhaps for another day. And then we think about chapter 13, the centerpiece, not only of this section of 1 Corinthians, but of the whole book. And that is the chapter on what? Love. Yes, love for God, but specifically in 1 Corinthians 13, how we are to treat each other if we truly love each other. And in the midst of all of that is this passage of Scripture on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What would warrant such strong criticism and admonition? That Paul would say, you, you, you're not even partaking of the Lord's Supper when you eat. Well, we know that uh, Paul mentions at the last of this chapter and during the chapter, he talks about them eating together. And from our studies over the past few weeks, we know that at the first few centuries at least, that the Lord's Supper and the communion service was taken in the context of a larger meal, sometimes referred to in the New Testament a couple of places as the agape or the love feast. And what Paul tells them is, look, if that's messing up, you're taking of the Lord's Supper together, and it was, he says, eat at home, eat your meal at home, rather than having that broader meal and then in the context of that meal, partaking of the Lord's Supper in the way that he spoke about what we call the words of institution that Jesus shared at the Last Supper, beginning in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. And we know from our historical study that around the middle of the third century, sometime around A.D. 250, that broader meal context had gone away. And the church was primarily focused on the Lord's Supper during the worship assembly. And that's exactly what Paul tells them to do here in, in 1 Corinthians. And so we know that it was not just the body of Christ on the cross, that they were not discerning, that they were not considering, but that it was bo- the body of Christ, the church. They were not being considerate of each other. And that's why he lashed out at them in, in such strong, strong language. And so in light of this, let's draw some conclusions today as we seek to apply this study of the Lord's Supper to us 
today. First of all, the Lord's Supper is the focal point of the assembly. The Lord's Supper is the focal point of the assembly. Both the biblical witness and the historical witness say that's true. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, during Paul's travels, he says, look, Sunday was coming around, and so we sought out the church, and we met together on the first day of the week to break bread. That was their purpose in coming together. That was something that they did every single week. And when we look at the historical study, that was the way it always was for centuries, Up until around the 1500s when the Reformation leaders, one or two of them, said, you know, we don't need to do that so often. The Lord's Supper is the focal point of the assembly. It should be our focus. Some have said that uh, the worship assemblies and the Lord's Supper are both vertical and horizontal, and we'll speak about that today. But one person has suggested that the focus of our worship assembly is God. But the purpose of our worship assembly is to worship Him together. It's encouragement. We meet here today to encourage each other. And that's why we get together, and that's why meeting together is so significant and so important, even if it just means connecting online, just so that we can have a part in this together. That's what the worship assembly is all about. If that were not the case, then it would be much easier just to meet individually at home. But that was not God's purpose, and that's not the purpose of our worship assembly, and it's also not the purpose of our Lord's Supper, our communion, our participation together. And so we need to partake of the communion every week, every week. Again, that's historically is such a strong record that that's what the church did for centuries, And from a biblical perspective, that's the only thing you can get out of it. But some have criticized that and said, well, that's too much. That's too much. I mean, if you partake of the Lord's Supper every week, then it's going to become routine. There's going to be some times where it just doesn't mean anything. And it would be better if we just waited and did it every month, every three months, twice a year, so that it would be a much bigger deal. Well, whether a particular assembly or Lord's Supper service strikes you as deeply moving or as routine, the important thing is that we meet together and that we are fed together and that we have the opportunity to experience this together. For example, anybody in here have any friends? Wow, I need to change my sermon topic today, I think. (laughs) Well, we all have friends, right? And so do you spend any time at all with your friends? No, no, no. We want it to be special, so we only get together once a year. We never talk. We never chat. Anybody here have family? Anybody here have a spouse, a husband or wife? I realize that with some of us husbands, we don't talk to our wives (laughs) nearly enough. But the truth is, you can't have that intimate of a relationship unless you spend time together. And it's really not a question of quality time versus quantity time because the truth is quality time is not possible without quantity time. And so you look at these experiences and you realize, yeah, but Bill, and every so often I have this wonderful experience with the Lord's Supper, but not very often, and, and I don't really remember it. And I say, okay, so tell me, what did you have to eat for lunch last Monday or last month on the second Monday? Well, I could never remember that. 
So you shouldn't eat on the second Monday of the month? Well, of course we should. And some of those meals are momentous. Some of us remember our meals better than others because we love it so much. (laughs) But the truth is that all of those are important, whether they're memorable or not. Whether it's at Texas Day Brazil (laughs) or it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They're all important. They're all significant. And they're things that we should always do. Quality time is just not possible without quantity time. Methodist scholar William Williman says this, and remember, this is a Methodist scholar. He writes this, we might respond to the question, how often should our church have the Lord's Supper, by asking, how often should we commune with the risen Christ? Is once every three months enough? Hardly. Friendship takes time, commitment, risk, frequent meetings. The more you get together, the more you grow together. Sometimes your gathering with a friend will be invigorating, inspiring, and full of significance. Sometimes it'll be a cup of coffee, a little idle talk, and nothing more. But the important thing was that you met. You got together. You provided the opportunity for a deep encounter. You took time. The same is true of our assembling together and specifically to commune with the Lord and with each other around the Lord's table in the church's family meal. The Lord's Supper and partaking of that Lord's Supper is the focal point of our assembly and we should do that every single week. Number two, we re-experience in a very real way the great events of God's salvation history each time we partake of the communion. This is that word we spoke about, anamnesis, and it's a word that means more than just remember. It is a dynamic re-experiencing. It's as if Jesus Christ is crucified right here today, all over again. It's as if we're the ones, Kelly, that are going to that tomb and seeing those linens there, realizing that that tomb is empty. It's that kind of thing when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's the way they understood the Passover. It wasn't just Moses and the Israelites that were led out of Egypt. It was me and my family, even though it was centuries later. We re-experience the death, burial, and resurrection and return of Christ, promised return of Christ every time. We partake of the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper is something we do, not watch. It is probably the single most active part of the worship assembly. It is the most participative part where every single one of us is doing something at the same time. We're eating that bread and we're drinking that cup. Jesus himself said, this do in remembrance of me. And so this Lord's Supper is a dynamic re-experiencing of his death, burial, and resurrection, of the promise of his return. And it's something that we do on a regular, weekly basis. Something we do. Well, these next three are connected. Number three is the Lord's Supper has great vertical significance. In other words, the Lord's Supper is about us and God. And that's right. 
Jesus is the one who died on the cross for us. Just as in the Passover, the Jews would look up to God and to what God had done for them in delivering them from Egyptian bondage. We do the same thing. We look up to God. And this vertical uh, significance here is something that, by and large, we in churches of Christ have done pretty well with. But the next two, not so much. And they are every bit as important as this one. In fact, they are the ones that the church at Corinth was not doing. Number three is the Lord's Supper has great vertical significance. Number four, the horizontal aspect is also very important as we share in the communion. That word fellowship, that is the word that we translate communion, is talking about that commonality. It is the church's family meal. We are not partaking of this at a table by ourselves. God has called us together to gather around the table together with our Christian family and to partake of that Lord's Supper, the church's family meal. Again, that term, the communion that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 brings that out. We talked about the great Bible history and and even the history of our own lives of shared meals and how important they are. This is the one that is the most important of all. It emphasizes shared fellowship and it calls us to be concerned for one another. And so number five is this. The Lord's Supper has ethical implications. It has great vertical significance. It has great horizontal significance in our one another aspect. And that leads us, both of those lead us to the ethical call in the Lord's Supper. Just as Jesus was active in his world, we need to be active in ours. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we don't just say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. We also say, I believe that I need to live the same way. And that is part of that confession, part of that proclamation that we spoke about last week. We need to be aware of the needs of others, just like Jesus was so aware of our needs that he put himself on the cross. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 29 that they must discern or consider the body of the Lord as they partake of the Lord's Supper together. And I think... By and large, we get the fact that he's talking about the body of Jesus Christ that was crucified on the cross, that was broken on the cross, and we remember that when we break the bread together. We get that. But it's the other aspect of the body of Christ that I think we have more trouble discerning during the Lord's Supper. More trouble considering the body of Christ that is the church. And yet in the context, as we said, of this section of 1 Corinthians, that's the body that he's talking about. And when you read 1 Corinthians 11, you realize, oh, they were thinking about the body of Jesus Christ on the cross well and good. They just didn't think it changed anything for them. And so they could go ahead and they could eat whenever they got there. They didn't have to worry about being considerate of any others. They didn't have to worry about the ones who couldn't get there earlier, perhaps because they were working or for whatever the reason. They didn't have to worry about others who maybe couldn't bring a casserole to the potluck. They would just go ahead and start on in. And the ones who came late, too bad, tough luck. 
And Paul says, if that's what you're doing, if your focus is all on yourself, and that's it, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. The Lord's Supper has ethical implications. It matters how we live. It matters how we train each other. And so when he says we must discern or consider the Lord's body, I think it's both. I think it's the body of Jesus that was given for us, but it's also the body of Christ, the church, where we are able to look around and say, you know, just as Jesus did that for me, I need to sacrifice for others. Christians are the Lord's body. And that's what the Corinthians had seemed to forget. The abuse in Corinth was what one writer calls a kind of classism that the apostle condemned. At communion, we are to remember what God has done for us in Christ, but we are also to remember who we are as a community. We partake of this meal together. Some have even suggested that the problem with the Corinthians is that they had a strictly vertical understanding of the Lord's Supper. That's all they were thinking. One person writes, the communing was between the individual and the Lord. What difference did it make who else was there or not there? Really? Is that that what we've come to? That it doesn't really matter who else is here just so long as I'm here and I can partake. That is absolutely the opposite of what Scripture says Jesus intended in causing this reminder to be fulfilled every week. When we think of the teaching of Scripture, we realize that it's consistent, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, six of the ten, the majority of the ten, are not about me and God. They're about each other and how we treat each other, which is incredible, amazing. When Jesus was cornered and asked the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God. But then he said what? And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the idea is they're both there at the top. So much so that the disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle John, when he writes 1 John chapter 4, he says, look, you can't keep commandment number one if you're not keeping commandment number two. You can't love a God that you've not seen if you don't love each other that you have. When we sit down at the Lord's table, we share our brother's burdens and we share our sister's struggles. We may have special devotional times in our lives where we try to isolate ourselves and put everything except our Lord out of our minds. But brethren, the Sunday assembly is not one of those times. And the Lord's Supper, the communion service, is not one of those times. Those times are important and we need to have them. So if you're a morning person, get up early and have it. (laughs) If you're a night owl, stay up late and have it. If you have time during the day at lunch or on your break or whatever, do it. But this is not me and Jesus' time here. This is us and Jesus with each other, including the Lord's Supper. We are not to get into our own private world with God and pretend no one else is around. How did we come to believe that? If God had desired us to put the distractions of others around us out of our minds as we partake of the Lord's Supper, then it would be much better for us to partake of it at home. Because then I wouldn't have to worry about how long the preacher's sermon is going to be. 
I wouldn't have to worry that the song leader led a couple of songs that we don't know or I don't like. I wouldn't have to worry that the communion leader didn't do it right or did it too long or did it too short. I wouldn't have to worry about the prayer leader going on and on or not praying enough. I could just do that at home like I want and it would be fine. No distractions. I could even turn off the cell phone. But the distractions are what this is all about. Do we get that? In Philippians chapter 2, in that incredible passage, Paul says, though he was up there in the presence of the Father, Jesus himself did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and to hold on to. But he emptied himself and made himself nothing and became a human being and came here. He did exactly the opposite of getting away from all the distractions. Exactly the opposite. One Church of Christ author recalls trying to picture in his mind uh, all the vivid images of the crucified Christ while at the same time striving to ignore everyone else around me and block out every every distraction, isolating himself from all others, just me and Jesus. So much so that moms at time may grab the child and say, don't bother daddy right now, it's the communion. Hey dads, how about this? How about grab that that child, put him in your lap, and as you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, whisper in their ear what you're doing. How about that? The child needs to see you praying in devotional at home, absolutely. But this is family day. This is the church's family meal. We gather around this table together. I'm afraid that for many of us, we have seen the Lord's Supper as that first dinner in the Sound of Music. Do you remember that one when Fraulein Maria has just gotten there and she's running late, of course, and Captain Von Trapp is down there with all the children and they're all in their place and they all have their, their backs straight up and they all have the food right there and then, and then she comes in. <laughs> and it's like nobody is supposed to talk. But Fraulein Maria isn't that what the your family meal is supposed to be like? <laughs> Joyce and I get to celebrate 45 years of wedded bliss <laughs> on May the 7th. Can you believe she's been married to me for 45 years? And they say there is no God. Ha! <laughs> ha! But if you ask her, and people ask us sometimes, what's the secret? Every time, I can almost guarantee you that the first thing that Joyce says is, you have to be able to laugh together. Because that's relationship. That's that intimacy. That's that closeness that you feel. Granted, we should be reverent. That's right. But the Lord's Supper is a joyful time where we gather together with those we love to celebrate what saved us from our sins. Table fellowship is an important and critical time of love. We come to the table as virtual strangers. We rise and go forth as kinfolk. This horizontal ethical aspect of communion must never be taken lightly. The Lord's Supper has vertical, horizontal, and ethical significance in our lives. 
And when we partake of it, we are proclaiming and confessing that this is how we live our lives. Number six, the Lord's Supper expresses our hope. Whenever Christians partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death again until he comes. It's a celebration of the already and the not yet. We have that sense of hope and that sense of joy and that sense of of community and family, if you will, heaven here. But then we're looking ahead to what's to come. And we've sung about it today and we can't wait for when that roll is called up yonder that will be there, not because of anything great that we have done, but because of the sacrifice that we are celebrating today in the church's family meal. And we're celebrating that we won't be the only ones on that roll. Just as the Jews observed the Passover in a festive, though respectful way, so too the Lord's Supper is to be a reverent celebration of the victory we have in Jesus. It may be a difficult balance to maintain each time, but our mood at the table should reflect our joy and gratitude and be solemn but not somber, joyful yet reverent. One person has written that the blessings and gifts of the Lord represented in the Lord's Supper must inevitably lead to the expression of joyfulness and praise to our God. The New Testament does not appear to associate sorrow or mourning over the death of Jesus with the celebration of the Supper. The Supper was not an occasion for mourning over His death, but rather for rejoicing in His presence and giving thanks for the benefits procured by His death. Whatever might have happened in a later period, specifically in the Middle Ages, the early church remembered at the supper what the Lord's death had provided rather than grieved over the fact that he had to die. The joy of salvation experienced and the hope of its heavenly consummation were dominant. Up from the grave, he arose. With a mighty triumph over his foes, he arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. We don't just celebrate that in a resurrection sermon. We celebrate that every single Sunday when we partake of this Lord's Supper. While it is true that the earliest Christians would remember the body of Christ on the cross as they partook of the Lord's Supper each week, they would also remember the unbridled joy they experienced in knowing the tomb was empty and seeing the resurrected Jesus in their midst. The somber mourning while partaking of the communion is more the result of the Roman church of the Middle Ages than the New Testament or the church throughout its first several hundred years. Our time around the table partaking of the church's family meal should be an act of contemplative joy. It calls for meditation and reflection upon the high cost for our salvation, but also joyful thanksgiving that that price was paid. It is finished. It truly is. And we celebrate that. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a fountain free, tis for you and me. That fountain was made possible by the actions that we celebrate, the greatest events in all of time, the death, burial, and resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. That's what makes that fountain 
possible. We proclaim our belief in that Savior and our love and concern for one another. Every time we gather around this table and partake together of the Lord's Supper, the church's family meal. This morning, if you need to be closer to your church family, if you need that salvation that comes from the one that we celebrate every week as we gather around this table for the church's family meal, there is a fountain free. Will you come? Will you come to the fountain free? If you'd like to do that today, come as we stand. Sing this great hymn together.